0: I would like to know how many people here have shared their bathrooms with their pets. (laughs) Anybody want to admit it, Alice? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I would like some suggestions from you later on how I could do that better. (laughs) My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here. And we're really glad that you're here. Uh, this morning as we uh, finish our sermon series on uh, the church principles, the principles that drive us as a church. Now, I did not attend Penn State University. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But I must admit, I'm impressed by the vision of Penn State University. I think this is their vision. It's in the footer on every one of their web pages. It says this, Teaching students to be leaders with a global perspective. Conducting research that improves lives. Contributing millions to the economy. And sharing expertise. I'm pretty impressed by that. These are amazing things. A global perspective. Improving lives. Contributing to the economy. Sometimes I wish... I could say that you will see our church accomplish similar things in our community. But, unfortunately, I can't. In fact, I don't think you will ever see things like this in our church. Not because these things aren't possible for our church to help accomplish, but, honestly, these things are great things, but they're not enough. A global perspective... Is great, but it's too small. We want an eternal perspective. Improving lives is fantastic, but we need more than that. We want to rescue hell-bound sinners. And contributing to the economy, again, is a good thing. I'm glad we have that. It's better than not having it. But I would rather see us disciple all nations. Friends, our church exists to minister God's grace to the hearts of His people. And God's people might be current members of our church, or they might not yet be. Uh, We want to minister God's grace to the hearts of God's people, whether those people know Christ yet or not. We want all to know Christ and Him crucified so that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus to the glory of God the Father. And so to keep us on task as a church... We have a short document that we call the Church Principles. Steph just mentioned it. And we've been highlighting it this last uh, these last few weeks. You can find it on the church's website uh, if you want to search for it at, at gfcsc.org, short for Grace Fellowship Church of State College.org. And these three principles in this document Highlight what we stand for as a church and what we focus on above all else. And the three principles are grace and fellowship and church. And we've been explaining these principles over the last few weeks in the sermons. This week I want to wrap it up by talking about the church principle, which is printed for you on the back of your handout. I would like to read it to you. The church principle... Grace Fellowship Church serves the Lord as a local assembly of his body in State College, PA. We seek fraternal relations with other churches for mutual edification and accountability. Because we are located in a transient community, God gives us a unique opportunity to impact the world for Christ. As God works through us to make disciples of Christ, he often calls our members to other places. Whether in state college or in the remotest parts of the world, our church embraces God's call to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That last sentence in that principle highlights a few key phrases from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, which is what I'm going to read this morning. If you have a church Bible, it's, we're going to start on page 524 at the end of Matthew chapter 4. Because I would like to explain what Jesus actually meant by these phrases, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so we're going to look at them in their context to see what they have to say to us. The main point that I would like to make this morning for you is this, that our church impacts the world from within a transient community by raising up people of extraordinary (laughs) character who do extraordinary deeds. That's what I'm going to talk about. This is the essence of our church principle. Our church impacts the world from within a transient community by raising up people of extraordinary character who do extraordinary deeds. And you can see I've broken it right down in the outline for what we're going to talk about. We're going to start with the transient community and then see how we raise up people of extraordinary character who do extraordinary deeds, and then at the end we'll see how that creates a world impact. Let me pray for us, and then I will read the first few verses. Father, we ask for your Spirit now that you would help us to understand. Lord, for any who don't believe, please grant them faith in you, help them to see their need for Christ, and help us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so... To impact your world the way you would have us do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 4 verse 23. This is the setup for what's to come, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, this big sermon Jesus preaches in Matthew 5 through 7. Starting at Matthew 4, 23. And he, that is Jesus, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So we we see here in this paragraph that Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom and he heals everyone in sight. And as he does that, things take off. And people come to Jesus from all over the place. Look at some of these locations. His fame spread throughout all Syria. That's the province to the north of Israel. This is Israel in the time of the Roman Empire. Just to the north is Syria. And Jesus did this teaching in Galilee, and people came from Galilee. Galilee is the northern part of the land of Israel. They came from the Decapolis Here in that last verse, the Decapolis was a group of ten cities on the east side of the Jordan River made up mostly of Gentile people who were were not Jews. They were coming over to hear from Jesus. People came from Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, from Judea, that southern region of Israel. And they came from beyond the Jordan. So we have people coming from all over the place to be healed of all kinds of things, their sicknesses, their diseases, their pains, demons, epilepsy, and paralysis. And Jesus does all of this in this one location of Galilee. He goes throughout Galilee and, and all the people come to this northern section of Israel, to Galilee. All these people from all these surrounding locations come to him and large crowds develop as Jesus grows in popularity. And they gather together in a small space with a few common goals. They all want something from Jesus. They want to be healed. And they all come to him for a short period of time with these common goals. And after they get what they came for, they will disperse. You see, what's going on here is a lot like Penn State University. It's a lot like State College, where you've got people from all over the place coming together for a few goals for a short time, and when those goals have been met, they will disperse, and they will leave once again. Consider Warren and Brenna Wright, who just moved away from our church this summer. Brenna grew up in Papua New Guinea, somewhere near the ocean, Southeast Asia. Warren was born and raised in South Africa. Warren came here to get a Ph.D. He wanted to advance in the field of physics so he could give greater glory to God in that field, and he came here for a short time to State College. He met his wife. He got his degree, and the two of them have now moved on together to North Carolina State University. They're living in Asheville. They came for a short time, they met their goals, and they moved on. And this happens to us all the time. This is the transient community that we live in. And what does Jesus do with all of these crowds? All of these folks who have come looking to get something from him. Chapter 5, verse 1 goes on to say, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... And then we get this three-chapter-long sermon. And this is important for us to see. Because Jesus sees the crowds. He knows what's going on and he's aware of this whole dynamic. And he goes up on the mountain and he sits down. And his disciples come to him and he teaches them... You see in verse 2 where it says, He opened His mouth and taught them, the them is referring to the disciples. That's the closest antecedent to that pronoun. Jesus teaches His disciples in the middle of all these crowds. Jesus loves and serves the crowds, but His chief concern is to teach and train His disciples. And if we went back in chapter 4, we would see these disciples are those fishermen who left their nets in order to fish for people alongside of Jesus. Those who want to be a part of God's kingdom and to want to see others become a part of God's kingdom. The point is this. Jesus is not threatened by a transient community. When Jesus is in the middle of a very transient community, he takes full advantage of it. And the advantage he takes is he wants to connect with many people but then teach them how to be his disciples, how to be his students, his followers. How does this apply for us? Friends, let's not be discouraged or threatened by a transient community. Sometimes it feels like Right when people start to get involved in our church and they make a really great impact, they leave. Times and seasons will change the makeup of our church. People and even leaders in our church will come and go. But as that happens, let's please stay focused on making disciples. We want to reach new people. And we want to teach them to follow Jesus. And we want to train them to give everything to follow Jesus. Now, how do we do that? We're in the transient community, but Jesus doesn't start doing this by listing out all the appropriate church programs to run. He doesn't explain what a worship service should look like. He doesn't give an effective vision statement for a church. Instead, what he goes on to do is he describes the character of a disciple. So point number two. We want to raise up people of extraordinary character. Let's listen to Jesus now. Matthew 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This breathtaking poetry that begins this sermon from Jesus has inspired the world for 2,000 years. You can go to many places around the globe and you will find these blessings stenciled on walls and printed in coffee table books and impressed on mugs. You can find these things everywhere. But as popular as they are and as well known as they often are, let us not miss the main idea here, which is that Jesus is teaching His disciples in the midst of the crowds. And so there's a distinction taking place in the audience between the disciples and the crowds. And so as Jesus speaks, there's a, a distinction taking place. He's making a, a differentiation, which becomes really explicit by the end of these blessings. We need to see that the differentiation is not among these eight Different blessings. He pronounces eight blessings. It's not that he's talking about eight different kinds of people who, if you're this kind, well, good for you, because this will happen. And if you're this kind, good for you, this will happen. That's not what he's saying. Because the first and the eighth both say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He brackets them with this same phrase to sort of tie them together and show us this is a package. This all goes together. There's not a lot of difference between the ones who shall be comforted and um, those who shall be satisfied. There's not a lot of difference between those who see God and those who are sons of God. So some of them are tied tied together. So the differences are not among these eight things. The difference lies between the person who has these eight traits and the person who persecutes the one who has these eight traits. Because that's where he ends. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. There's the distinction Jesus wants to make. So you have these traits or you don't. And if you have them, you will be persecuted. You will be attacked for it. You will be reviled and made fun of. In other words, these eight blessings describe what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. All eight traits will be present in the person who follows Jesus. Let me explain. First, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit, that means that you have full confidence that you have little to nothing in yourself to offer to God. You're poor in spirit. I don't have any wealth. I don't have any riches of spirit that I could offer God. That would give him anything. Second are the blessed are those who mourn. The one who mourns is the one who grieves over his or her sin and separation from God. Because I have nothing to offer to God. That saddens me. I mourn over that. Blessed are the meek. This is, these are the ones who, who you don't push your own agenda. You commit to God's agenda. Which leads right to the next one. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know you can't be righteous yourself. You need God's righteousness. You're hungering and thirsting to be made right with God. And this makes you merciful. In other words, you have a strong hope that people, including you, but especially the people you relate with, won't get what they deserve. That's what it means to be merciful. You don't demand the justice that everybody deserves. And the pure in heart, the next one, is the one, those who are transformed to love what God loves, and they have undivided honor and praise for God. They are pure in heart. And they become peacemakers, those who do with others what God did with them. Bring people together. Bring reconciliation. Make that happen because of God's love and His mercy. And those who do such things will be persecuted. That's the eighth one. The world will reject those who seek to honor God. Now, these traits are extraordinary because they are opposite to the world, to the crowds, to popular values. You see, instead of being poor in spirit, the world says, look inside yourself and find your own significance. Instead of mourning, the world wants to laugh, party, and have a good time. Instead of being meek, the world wants you to assert yourself and make your mark on the world. Instead of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the world wants you to hunger for knowledge or for insight or popularity or acceptance. Instead of being merciful, the world wants you to fight for your rights. Instead of valuing the pure in heart, the world wants you to clean up your act, clean up the outside, and don't ever confuse your personal life and your professional life. We keep those things separate. And instead of being peacemakers, we are told by the world to do what's best for you. Do what's best for you. Love someone as long as love lasts. Maybe that means you have to be a peace breaker. Sometimes it means you have to be a peace faker and you just go along to get along. Depends on whether you're more of a strong personality type or you're just not good with conflict. But at all costs, fit in and don't ever let other people say bad things Against you. In fact, if they do, that should be considered prejudice or hate crimes. You see, the world's values are completely opposite to what Jesus says the disciple values here. How does this apply to us? As a church, Grace Fellowship Church really cares about making disciples. This is what we are about. We wrote it in this church principle. As God works through us to make disciples of Christ, He'll call our members to other places, and wherever we are, we embrace his call. And we, as a church, we have a lineup of programs to help us make these disciples. We have a worship service every Sunday morning. We have Sunday school for kids and small groups for for adults. Uh, afterwards, we have we have discussions for teenagers. We have growth groups during the week, small groups. We have women's Bible studies. We have men's and women's retreats. We have ministry teams you can serve on and be trained in in different skills. And we we do all these things, but the goal is always and will remain to make disciples. The programs should serve the mission, not vice versa. So as a church and, and as among the elders... We will often try anything that seems like a good idea, especially if someone is excited to try something that might help us to make disciples. Sure, we'll try something. But we're also going to kill something that is no longer a good idea. Because the exact programs we do, the way we run stuff, isn't as important as what we're trying to accomplish through it. Anything that takes on a life of its own and doesn't, Produce people of extraordinary character? (sighs) What will a church look like that is filled with such people? Children. Children, this is why when your parents teach you and your Sunday school teachers teach you and we work with you, we don't want you to pretend to be good kids. We want you really to be Good people who love Jesus. We want you to grow to become more like Jesus. There are a lot of children in the world who learn how to pretend to be good when they're at church. And then they grow up and they give it all up because that's not really who they are. And that's not okay. Jesus wants everything. What will a church look like that is filled with such people with this kind of character? This extraordinary character will come out in extraordinary deeds. Let's look at the next part, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. After that list of eight blessings, Jesus gives two crisp metaphors, and these are the ones we allude to in our church principle. The salt of the earth and the light of the world. Both metaphors are here to show us That things have a purpose. That's the point of these metaphors. Things have a purpose. Salt is meant to be salty. It's meant to taste good. And we know that he's thinking of it that way because he says, If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He's thinking about salt's saltiness. And you don't want to lose that. If you lose its tastes, if it loses its saltiness, it isn't any good. And light is meant to shine. And he illustrates that by explaining that nobody would ever think to light, to turn a light on only to cover it or hide it. That's not what a light is meant for. Both metaphors get at the same point. Things have a purpose. And as with salt and light, so also with disciples. Disciples have a purpose. Verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus here, he's not suggesting that his followers ought to show themselves off to people. He'll correct that misunderstanding in chapter 6 if you keep reading. But he's merely saying that things have a purpose. Salt is meant to be salty. Light is meant to shine. And disciples are meant to do good works. That's just what a disciple is meant for. Someone who doesn't do good works must not be a disciple, just like a hidden thing must not be a light because people don't hide lights, and an unsalty thing must not be salt, because salt is salty. And he says this, so that they may see your good works. This is not just about doing good works, but the good works that the the disciple of, of extraordinary character does, they are inescapably visible and public. So someone who is not a Christian in public is not a Christian. If you are a Christian in private at home and you are not a Christian at the workplace or in your classroom or around town or at the grocery store or as you use your computer, then you might not be a Christian. Here is the extraordinary character in action, producing extraordinary deeds. Church members, Christians will not stay the same people. Others will see your values, your character, lived out, impacting your life. And so we want to change the world. But a prerequisite to a changed world is people with changed lives. How does this apply to us? Friends, Our character must be lived out. It's not enough to have godly character. It will come out in your actions. And if you want to understand how godly character is lived out in actions, I encourage you to read the rest of chapter 5. This morning I'm not going to cover the rest of the chapter, but Jesus goes on to explain this exact point. Here's how your character comes out in your actions in all these different categories, in your relationships and your marriage and your speech and the way, your way you view uh, people who hurt you and all these things. And he, uh, I, I do want to say just three quick things about where he goes in the rest of the chapter, three themes that he gives for the Christian community here. First is that the the church, Jesus, through his church, he cares about all of life. Not one bit of God's law can be set aside. He will say all of it must be fulfilled. And and he cares about our friendships and our motives and our marriage and our speech and our sense of justice and our generosity, all of life. The second theme in the rest of chapter 5 is that the church must target people's hearts. You see, Jesus cares not just about the avoidance of murder, but about addressing the anger that underlies it. He cares not just about adultery and divorce, but about chastity and pure thoughts. He cares not just about people using Internet filters to help them not see unsavory things on the computer, but he's concerned about producing people who are repulsed by impure things. So the church, Jesus, through the church, cares about all of life, must target people's hearts. And the third theme in the rest of chapter 5 is that the church will channel God's grace to the world. The church is a community where people don't fight for their rights, but give up their rights for each other. They don't hold grudges or demand justice, but they seek peace and reconciliation. And they don't exclude or deride their enemies, but pray for them and seek their welfare. So we care about all of life here. We want to target people's hearts, and we want to channel God's grace. And with that last point, channeling God's grace, especially to people who don't deserve it, that that section on Christian deeds ends where it began. If you look down at verses 43 and 44, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus assumes that his followers will be persecuted. And part of this chapter is bracketed by that idea of persecution, up in verses 10 to 12, and then down there in 43 and 44. And so we should ask this question. If there's no persecution, is there an impact? We move on to our last point, world impact. You see, if the world sees your good works, because you're like salt, you're like light, you're doing your good deeds, it's visible in public, not as a show off, but it just, you can't help it affecting everything. The world will see your good works and some people will hate you for that. That was the climax of the blessings in verses 10 through 12. After he says, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, eight times. Then in verse 11 he changed it up and he said, blessed are you, When others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then here comes the most upside down thinking you can imagine. Rejoice and be glad. Blessed are you when people revile you. Rejoice and be glad. Now, please understand this. Suffering and persecution are not good things. That's not what the Bible teaches. We don't wish for them. And it's okay if you don't want suffering and persecution to come. It's really okay. You're not less mature of a person. Because in the next chapter of this sermon, Jesus will teach us to pray, deliver us from evil. So it's okay to want to be delivered from evil and from bad things. And he will say that we should pray to God, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there is a sense in which God's will does not include persecution because the day will come when all persecution and suffering will come to an end. And God's will is not for people to turn against him and attack his people. So what does Jesus mean here then in verse 12 when he says, Rejoice! And be glad. Note, he does not say rejoice and be glad because persecution is a good and godly thing and you should prefer it over peace and safety. He doesn't say that. He gives two other reasons to rejoice and they get at the heart of why we tend to hate persecution. We hate persecution because I think we fear the loss, we fear what we're going to lose if people attack us, and we fear exclusion. We're not going to be part of the group. And Jesus tackles those two things head on. He says, first, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. In other words, don't fear loss. Don't fear the loss of your promotion or of your job or of your status or of your friends or of your respect or of your time, or the loss of your health, or your well-being, or your home, or your nation, or even your life. Don't fear the loss because you will get something better when Jesus comes back. Great is your reward in heaven. That's the first reason to rejoice. But the second reason to rejoice is, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, don't fear exclusion, Exclusion from the insider club of your friends who are making fun of Christians? Or exclusion from your family who might reject you? Or your friends who turn on you? Or the community that doesn't accept your lifestyle? Because Jesus says you've already been included in something far better. The community of God's people through the ages. Those who spoke God's words and performed God's deeds. And you're being treated just like the prophets were treated. While it's not fun to be reviled, it's worth it because it means you're making a difference. It means you're getting people's attention and they see you as a threat to their ideas and their power structures and their ways of life. And here is the measurement of whether we are being salt and light. It's whether others see our good deeds. It's whether our values have taken hold of our lives and we're being persecuted for it. If so, you are blessed by God. Now, I praise God that in State College, our lives are not yet in danger. It might be someday, but not yet. You're probably not going to be executed for being a Christian. But the question is this. Is there anything in your life that actually is in danger because you're a Christian? Do you have any relationships that you're willing to put on the line because you're living out extraordinary deeds out of extraordinary character? Or how about your autonomy or your respect from others? or your reputation, or even your self-assurance? Do you have anything on the line as you follow Christ? Because the world impact will be measured by the loss of such things. Now sometimes people think Grace Fellowship Church is a strange church. It's not like other churches that they're used to, and I agree. I think Grace Fellowship Church is a strange church. We don't have a a paid, full-time pastor. We have a pretty simple, straightforward worship service. We give you full-page sermon outlines. This is kind of weird, I think. No, we don't pass offering plates around. We don't have too many activities during the week. We have some, but we have a few Bible studies and growth groups. But we don't have stuff scheduled every night of the week or even most nights of the week. There's some weird things about us. And, and honestly, any of those things I just listed can still change. None of those represent eternal commitments on the part of the elders that it will always be this way. Maybe next week we'll pass an offering plate just to, you know, mix it up. But what I hope never changes is something that I hope makes us very strange, which is that our church impacts the world from within a transient community by raising up people of extraordinary character who do extraordinary deeds. Friends, Jesus died to make this possible, and we can do no less than give it our best effort to follow him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please help us to follow in the footsteps of our Master, Jesus. And Lord, we know that we cannot do all that You have called us to do and You sent Jesus to do it for us. But Lord, You have given us Your Spirit and You have empowered us to do these things. And Lord, please help us never to back down from these standards that You have given Help us not to make excuses by our circumstances, by our transient community, but help us, Lord, to be and to raise up people of extraordinary character who do extraordinary deeds and so impact the world. We pray, Lord, that you would go before us and you would empower us and that you would get all the glory as folks see our good deeds. We want them to turn to you, our Father in heaven, and so we bow before you and ask you... To do all this in Jesus' name, amen.